0: Please open with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews. It is toward the back of your Bible. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one within arm's reach, a hardback copy that you're welcome to take with you after the service today. Uh, The index in the front will tell you where the book of Hebrews is, three or four books from the end of the scriptures. And this is the beginning of a new preaching series for us today. The world runs on our attention, on our eyeballs. The economy runs on eyeballs, uh, advertisements on your phone. Uh, The whole way that the apps that you use on your phone are designed are to keep you in and many of them to draw your attention to this or to that, that you might click it and pay attention to this or to that. And if it's not designed to draw your attention out, it's designed to keep your attention in. The world runs on our attention. Even our distraction, we could say, which comes with some stakes for us personally. My kids are young and they're in school and we exhort them concerning the stakes involved in losing your attention and getting distracted. Well, the stakes are so much higher for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and for you spiritually not just in your educational or vocational journey. But the stakes are much higher for us spiritually and as a church that our attention would be fixed in the right place and that we would not become dangerously distracted. Thankfully for us this morning, the first four verses of Hebrews will take good care of that. So let us give our attention to God's word. Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 through 4. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name that he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So opens the book of Hebrews. The letter to the Hebrews. Or even better... A sermon in letter form to the Hebrews, which we'll explain a little later. Well, there is a lot going on here in these four verses. We just came out of a series in Leviticus, chapter several chapters at a time. Uh, no especially long readings as we work through the book of Hebrews. This first four verses you know we break them up that way we added verses to make it easier to navigate and refer to parts of the bible but this is actually just the first sentence of the book and it's an arresting sentence but it's a full sentence there are no less than 10 ideas in here that could get their own class or session in a class on the doctrine of christ These ideas and these words in this sentence span from eternity past to eternity future, uh, from heaven down to earth, from the beginning of the Bible story to the end of the Bible story. Pretty much everything is right there in that first sentence. And so it's all we'll try to bite off this morning. And it's complicated how it's put together, the order of things here, why they're in the arrangement that they are. But it is not chaotic. Uh, This is a very orderly, even beautiful sentence. There's a lot to look at, but not like your bedroom floor, uh, teenagers. Um, uh, Not like your teenager's bedroom floor parents. Uh, Not like some of your bedroom floors. The junk drawer, everyone's got one of those. Not like your inbox, things just came in when they came in. Now, this is more like a diamond. Now, a diamond is complex, and there's facets and cuts in every direction, but it is beautiful. And there is order to it and symmetry to it that explains its, its beauty. It's shimmery. It's crazy shimmery. And yet, there is order to it. It's even artistic in the way that it is held up. And there may be many other diamonds in the band, the setting of the diamond that holds it together. Nevertheless, we understand that complexity and detail doesn't mean a lack of order. Often, when it's beautiful, there is order. Even if we don't understand how the order works, we know that it is orderly. And so this passage is the same way. And you don't need to know how it works in order to appreciate it and for it to have its effect on you. But it can be helpful to examine it for a few moments here at the head. We have a a break, a parallel between two separate eras. begins long ago. But in these last days, these last days that we are in, two texts form its background. Here at the head, let's turn to the book of Psalms, or you can listen, that's okay. The Psalms are in the middle of your Bible. There are two passages that are especially prominent in the background of this passage that will keep showing up through the book of Hebrews. So first go to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 1 and 2 form an introduction to the entire book of Psalms, which is uh, like a prayer book, a book of poems for prayer and song to God that the people of Israel would sing, carefully composed in order to encourage and shape and direct their hope. And it begins with Psalm 1, and then the second half of the introduction is Psalm 2. And it sets the peoples and our attention on the day when God will reign supreme through His Son. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? We can ask that in every age, even ours. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And what does God do as the nations rage against Him and His Messiah? He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, I will set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations... Your heritage and the ends of the earth, your possession. And you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling, kiss the sun, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. God will have his way, he will reign as king, he will do it through the person of his son who will be king, to whom he will give the nations as an inheritance, and all who take refuge in him will be blessed. Now, I'll turn to Psalm 110. This, as well, will be a recurring uh, passage that, that the author of Hebrews will refer to in his book. It also stands behind the passage we read this morning. And David is writing. David, that great king to whom God promised. All of God's purposes and promises will be routed through David and one of his sons to come, a greater son of David. And David, meditating on God's promises to him and All of God's promises to that point, which will route through his son one day, writes this. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning and the dew of your youth will be yours The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand and he will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. And he will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. And he will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. And he will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. A passage that may leave us scratching our heads at all kinds of levels included, who is he talking to and who is David's Lord and to whom the Lord says, sit at my right hand. Is that David's greater son to come? Well, the prophets have been meditating on this passage for generations so that when we get to the book of Hebrews, it's all the more plain what God has in store. David was meditating on God's promises to his forefathers and the author of Hebrews has been meditating on the whole of the Old Testament scriptures including this passage and will draw on it as he preaches to us in this letter. You can turn back now to Hebrews chapter 1. Two contrasts and two texts to form the background of This passage and two movements in this psalm as well from verses 2 through 4 there are two movements a movement from a contrast between the son and the prophets to a declaration that he's the heir of all things and then he is the creator of all things and then the radiance of the glory of God and then and then a second movement now as if backwards through the list with a little more texture he is the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the majesty on high. And then concludes with a contrast between the sun and not prophets in this case. But, but angels, for he has a more excellent name than them. And so you can see the beauty of the diamond here. It even has, even has a point And plenty of shimmering facets. Well, for our purposes this morning and unto the same effect, we pray, I pray that this passage had as a shotgun blast at the beginning of the race through this this book to command our attention, we will consider four astounding truths about the Son of God. Attention arresting Cruz laying down at the head of this letter, which is really more like a sermon. He will address his readers by name and with some closing greetings. So it's not exactly sermon notes, but it is more than merely a theological essay. This is written to Christians, to churches, to a church, in order that they may hold fast to Christ. It begins the way it does without greetings, because it is in many ways more like a sermon. There are moments in this book where he will say, I need to be brief here and I'm moving on. It almost has an oratory quality to it, like he can hear it being read out loud. And there are other indications of its sermonic nature. There will even be takeaways in this series for us about the nature of preaching the application will be straightforward, it will be sharp, and it will fall off the bone. But he begins with a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son from all eternity. He arrests our attention with four stunning truths about him. The first truth, the Son in relationship to the prophets and the Old Testament scriptures. The second, the Son in relationship to all creation. Then the Son in relationship to the Father, and then the Son in relationship to to us. First, the Son in relationship to the Scriptures. He is God's full and final Word. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days... He has spoken to us by his son. God has spoken. Let us start there. He has spoken. He has spoken not once, but many times. He has spoken not in one way, but he has spoken. In many, many ways. Not only did he speak to Adam in the garden, but he came to Moses, a representative then of sinful humanity, in a bush that was burning. That was one way that he spoke to us. And then in the scriptures that the prophets put down for us, that I think are in focus in this sentence, he spoke in diverse ways. Through narrative portions, storytelling, through through poetry, we have a God who's a poet. Through apocalyptic literature, He is imaginative. Even through love songs, through letters in our New Testaments, often through a combination of many of these in. In one letter or book in our Old Testament Scriptures, He has spoken to us at many times across the whole uh, years of the Old Testament Scriptures and in many ways represented by them, proving that He is no impersonal God. Here is a takeaway from this simple truth that God has spoken. He is not a God who sets the world up and then walks away. And everything that happens since he created it is merely the consequence of the initial cause of creation. One thing after another after another. No particular direction to it, no personal engagement with it by God. If he's aware of it, he is disengaged. He may as well be gone. That is the God of deism. It wants to retain a commitment to the supernatural, that God is, and that all of this came from someone, which is smart, it can't come from nothing, and yet it wants to retain human autonomy and a distance from the Creator. Uh, We don't know. Maybe we'll find out one day. No, the God of Scripture is no deistic God who sets the world up like a watchmaker and then lets it go. He is engaged. He has spoken many times and in many ways. And it's personal. Not only that He's personally engaged still, but that He's speaking personally to our Father's by the prophets the original readers were likely mostly Jewish it doesn't have to be the case that they were of Jewish background in order for the book to be understood right there's debate about the readership there's debate about the author what we know about the author I have on very good grounds that God knows who the author is we don't that's about all we'll spend on that Our fathers, but God has spoken to our fathers by the prophets. No, He is no impersonal, detached deity. He is a very personally engaged God. And He hasn't just spoken generally in vague terms. Although in general revelation, the things that He has made, He has spoken to us a clear enough word about His nature, His divine nature, so that we are without excuse, Scripture says. But he has actually spoken in very specific ways with words. He's interacted in history with us directing things toward his end. Events and people. The Exodus story being that major event in the Old Testament. But he didn't just direct it and engage with us in it. But he gave us a word to interpret what he was doing. So that we are not left to wonder what his intentions are. He intends to save That's a bit on the the when and the how and the to whom. But why has he been engaging and speaking all of these many ways and to our fathers by the prophets at so many times? Verse 2, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. And this is not merely one additional way in which he speaks to us it's not even an additional way that's so good he's not going to do the other ways anymore although he is no longer revealing himself that way for the son has come the son is the the goal toward which all of his other revelation has been leading at many times he has spoken in order one day that we would receive his son in these last days these times He has spoken in many ways in order that we might know Christ. He has spoken to our fathers by the prophets in order that we would hear his voice and know his word when his word comes to dwell among us who is Christ. And this doesn't mean that the Old Testament is unimportant or was ever unimportant. It is simply to say that the Old Testament was incomplete by its very nature. It was preparatory. The Old Testament scriptures, all of them, complex, representing many times in many ways and prophets, and and it's a detailed story, but all of it very simply is leading to one place, and that is the arrival of the Son on the stage of history in the person of Christ. But it is not unimportant for us today for the same reason. And we will see in the course of this sermon of the book of Hebrews that he will quote authoritatively the Old Testament scriptures. So he has not moved on. He is preaching Christ from all the scriptures. He is even preaching all the scriptures as for us today in light of Christ who has come. He'll even quote the Scriptures and say, today, as if they speak to us now, and so they do, by the Holy Spirit, as the Holy Spirit speaks by the whole of Scripture to us concerning the Son. Well, that is Christ in relationship to all the Scriptures. An astounding, attention-getting truth. Certainly for those who would have Known of those who walked the earth with Jesus, these readers had not. These readers had placed their faith in a man they had learned of through the preached word. And it was coming at a cost for them. And so this arresting truth about Jesus as the culmination of all of God's plans and purposes was encouraging and strengthening. And it set them up to hear all that he had next to say. Well now, the Son in relationship to all things. Son in relationship to all things. He is the one through whom all things are created and carried along. He is the one through whom all things are created and carried along. Verse 2 again. He's spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things through whom he also created, created the world. This man, Christ, was born. He had a birth date. And yet he apparently was, before he was born, a man. Now these readers aren't finding this out. They believe this, but they need to hear it again. But more than that, He was before anyone was born. He was before the universe was born. He was before there was anything, which is why He's appointed the heir of all things. This, of course, isn't the only scripture that speaks to this, the Gospel of John. John actually begins his Gospel by speaking of the Word who was in the beginning and who was God, and the Word who was with God, and that all things were made through Him, and that without Him was not anything made that was made, good Christmas verses, good verses for any Sunday morning. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Colossians 1.16 speaks of Christ, not only as the image of the invisible God, but the one through whom all things have been created and for whom all things are created. This is a claim on repeat across the whole New Testament. That the man Christ Jesus is more than just a man... That he was before he was born, and that he was before the earth was born, and he was before there was anything. And it's not precisely right to say he was the creator. That he is the one through whom all things were created. For it is God, Christ is the one through whom God created the world. And we'll spend a little bit of time this morning getting the characters in these verses, rightly related. But for now, it's enough to point out that Jesus wasn't new when Jesus was a newborn babe. But there's more to say on this exact point. Uh, Verse 3, second half. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. So he made it all and he holds it all together. So before he was born, he, he made it all, and he is now, and has been, and will hold all of it together. He's the creator of all things, and he's the sustainer of the universe by his powerful, by his powerful word. And this isn't so much like Atlas, who is holding the earth on his back, punished by Zeus, now to carry the earth It's certainly no punishment or trial for him to do so. No, it's it's perfectly natural for him to do so. He sustains all things. He holds all things together. Carrying them along is a good image. He's carrying them and upholding them. But carrying also entails some movement and direction. For this upholds the universe indicates a little bit more than merely holding everything in place, but moving everything toward its intended goal, its end. He is carrying all things along according to the purpose for all things from eternity. This is Christ who is doing this, all of it. Now this raises natural questions. The relationship between the Son, who is appointed heir of all things, and through whom God created the world, and the Son and, and God. What is the relationship of the Son to God? The language of Son is helpful, but we need more than just that that image, and our own experience of fatherhood and, and sonship in this life. Islam will reject this claim that Jesus is the Son of God because they reject the idea that God would have a kid like we have kids. Mormonism will believe that, that Jesus is himself. A son or a kid, a child of God, like we have children, didn't, wasn't around from the beginning, but has himself a beginning. And his father created him. Well, there is no such teaching in our whole Bibles along those lines. And yet the sonship imagery is still helpful. What's crucial is understanding the nature of the overlap. The way in which he is a son and what that means and does not mean. So let's move on here and we'll get some help. Now, the son in relationship to God, the father we'd say. He is the pristine radiance and representation of the father. The pristine radiance in representation of the Father. Verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Radiance. That is a great word. We're speaking about the sun in in family terms. Let's think about the sun that's in the sky. S-U-N for a moment. The sun has rays. Rays that are the sun and that come from the sun. That manifest the presence of the sun. That give And extend the life of the sun in the sky. But yet are also at the same time distinct from the sun in the sky. And like any illustration, keep pressing it and will break down. Which is why we use several and qualify them all. And speaking of the Trinity, as the church has called this for years. This is simply a way of trying to capture what we see on the page of the Bible. We see... A person, a real person distinct from the father, father and son, who's equal in glory and power and authority, and really distinct. So not merely another name for the one simple being. Like a person might go by several names, including a nickname or a title, That is not quite right. Even in this book of Hebrews, we will see father speaking to and of son. These are separate persons. And yet, the son is the radiance of the glory of God. Well, there is no speaking of the glory of God as anything but God himself shining forth. The Son is the shining forth of God. And so He is God. And yet as we come to the New Testament, we read of the Father distinct from the Son and of the Holy Spirit who illumines the Son, reveals Him to us through the Word of God. The Holy Spirit speaking as God. What do you call this? We call it the Trinity. But God is not merely a doctrinal name that we've come up as a helpful way of capturing His nature. He is God Himself from all eternity. The Father who planned to create and did so through the agency of the Son who is the shining forth of His glory. Not having a beginning and not being created nevertheless... Similar to the way a son follows from a father. Extending and expressing and representing the father. And it's about there that the overlap ends. He is no created being. Love of the father. We could go on. He is the radiance of the glory of God. A little bit of the shining face of Moses had to be covered so that it wouldn't kill the people of God who were still in their sins in the Old Testament story. And yet here we have one who doesn't just have a little bit of his glory on his face from when God walked by. We have one who is the radiance of the glory of God. I suppose he was there. He's the exact imprint of of his nature. Uh, the representation of God. Imprint. Think of the imprint of an image on a coin. But even that's not quite right. Or it's not quite enough. Because this is more than an impression. Or an, an image over here of something over here. It's, it's the image he is of the exact image of the divine nature of God. He doesn't carry a card with him that represents God. And he takes some divinity from God on his journey in a representative form. He actually takes the divinity of God, his godness, wherever he goes. Because he is, the best way we have ever been able to express it, based on the actual teaching of verses like this, God in himself. Now this is the sun, does that have your attention? This is the man that walked the earth. Before he was a man, he always was. The pristine radiance, the exact representation of God. Now let's move on. Now, in relationship to us, he is our prophet, our priest, and he is our king. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. In these four verses that begin this letter, are every dominant idea in teaching about Christ in miniature, or in briefest form. Kids, you might have seen those little dino, dino pills, you know those little pills, Don't eat them. But if you stick it in water, it might turn into a dinosaur about that big. There's more than meets the eye. In some ways, the whole book of Hebrews is a little bit like that. Just add water. And we're just going to be doing that over the next number of months. And in this package of four verses is everything that is to come. And right here, even in these last few verses, we see that Jesus is our prophet, our priest, and our king. He doesn't put it in that order, but that's a memorable order. After making purification for sins, he sat down. Purification for sins. Where have we heard that before, friends? Remember the purification offering? Was it the fourth offering? That offering that was given to Israel by which she might be cleansed of her guilt before God and by which... The place and the things involved and sacrifice and the place where she would meet with God would be purified from sin because God's holiness is that white hot presence of God and life in himself and we are stained by sin and death. But the purification offering with blood all over that inner place, blood representing the life of the animals slain for the people, That blood cleansing the place of the presence of God and taking our guilt away so that we can come together. So that those who are from the realm of death and under the curse of sin can meet with the God who can't touch death and sin. Praise God he's not like that. Praise God he can't get close to those who are stained by death and sin. But praise God he's a God that provides a way for those who are in the realm of death and stained by sin to meet with him. And after making purification for sins, double-click, book of Leviticus. He is our great high priest. He is the sacrifice offered for us that is perfect. We'll learn about that. And he is our great high priest of a different order than the priest of Aaron. As grateful as we are and as the people of Israel would have been for the sacrificial system and the priesthood Like the Old Testament scriptures, it was incomplete. And in that way, it was deficient, calling out for something better to come and looking forward to it. And it has come in Christ. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He's our priest and he is our king. He is that king promised in the Psalms that we just read about. Who would sit on his throne, to whom the Lord would give to David's Lord, the Father to the Son, all the nations and all things. And so Jesus is the inheritor of all things, not just a plot of land in the Middle East, but indeed the whole of creation by virtue of the fact that he is the creator. And also by virtue of the fact that he has won all things to himself through his work on the cross and in his resurrection to a new creation. He sat down, which means it's done. Which means you and I can take comfort and find assurance and stability in trouble in light of that. He is our priest and he is our king. And having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Why is he bringing up angels? That's the question all of the commentators have to wrestle down. And there are different answers. It doesn't seem to me the best answer that the readers were particularly curious about things angelic. Some of us can get carried away with books about angels, and who said what, and experiences with angels, and connecting the dots in the scriptures. And we want to do our very best to connect the dots, actually, and there is better and worse teaching on this. But the point of scripture, and the angels in scripture, is to lead us to Christ, But why why are angels here? I don't think it's that they had an issue of obsessing about angels. And so he's saying, hey, by the way, those are great. Yeah, well, Jesus is better. And angels don't quite have so much of a focus in the Old Testament that they would come forward in this way because they are shown to be so great. There's something going on here. There's a way in which angels function in the Bible's story, which is important. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. We must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and we'll stop there the message declared by angels. There it is. Remember this, book, this little little paragraph we're in is like a diamond. The sentence, excuse me, it begins with a contrast between prophets who disclosed God's word to the, to the fathers. The sentence closes with a contrast between the Son and angels who disclosed a message to the fathers. Angels are mediators of the word of God in the Old Testament. And here, Jesus is held out as a superior mediator of the word of God and of God himself to us. And so, Jesus is our priest. He is our king. And he is our prophet. And as you read along the Old Testament scriptures, if you ever wish that you could have been there... Ever wish you could have been there to see that thing, to see that bush, and to hear that voice, and to see the sun stop, or for God to speak to you in a dream, like he did to Abraham and others, you have something better in Christ. And in fact, it is God's purpose for Christ the Son to be known In the world, in this age, through the preaching of Christ. Which is why this author is doing what he's doing, preaching Christ. So through the preaching of the word of God, which we will give ourselves to every week until Christ comes, and throughout the course of this series, God the Father is disclosing himself, God is disclosing himself in the person of his Son, Who shines forth in this room, in this congregation, before this church family, in the preaching and the heralding of the good news of Christ and all that he has done? God adds something special to this miraculous work that we're about in preaching. And so behold the Son of God in this preaching series through this letter and sermon of Hebrews in the preaching of His Word. This is what the original readers needed. They needed a sermon. They had temptations to leave off Christ that came from without, outside of them, pressures, persecution. They also had temptations that came from within them. To leave off Christ. To to be forced away, as it were, by the pull, the push, excuse me, of the world. And to be pulled away by their own desires. Even to drift away slowly from their Lord. They had given themselves in faith to this God-man god man Jesus Christ as Lord, and it came at a great cost. Their p- property was plundered, the author will say. And yet they were joyful about it because of their faith in him. And yet he writes because he is concerned that they may leave off Christ. As the temperature heats up on persecution, and as they encounter the daily temptations that you and, you and I both know. We don't live in the first century, but we share their human skin. We were created like they were, we're sinners like they were. And we trust by faith in the Son of God and this preached word like they did. And we need this word today like they did. We need the encouragement and the confidence and the stability that it will bring to us. We need this word of exhortation. At the very end of this book, the author will summarize his whole work as a word of exhortation. That's partly why we call it a sermon. There are six major sections to the book, which we'll explore. Each major section has a warning, a jolting warning, a very sermonic, preachy warning that if you fall from Christ, if you drift from Christ, there is no other way forward with you and God. He is the way, there is no other priest. There's no other way into the presence of God but through Christ. Do not fall away, is the exhortation. But even here, in this doctrinal section of the book, a single sentence, and in all of the exposition and explanation of the Old Testament, he is adding fuel and force to that exhortation, so that you and I might not fall away. And along the way, he's going to give us different images and illustrations like a good preacher. And the best of them, to my ears, we'll use as the banner for our series. That Jesus is for us an anchor for the soul. That imagery of an anchor calls to mind a journey, a long journey. And so is the Christian life. And so we are journeying on our way to meet the Lord. It calls to mind treachery and danger, not just a destination. And so we know danger from within and from without, like the readers did. But it also calls to mind security and stability at the very same time. For that anchor of a bow, of a ship will descend deep into the places the ship cannot go in order to anchor the ship. Now, the illustration breaks down because the ship keeps moving. But that's also a contradiction within Hebrews, which is not really a contradiction. That we have at the same time arrived at our destination. For we are with Christ and he is with us. And he, the anchor for our souls, has been planted into the most holy place in heaven. And he takes us with him we're there. Nevertheless, at the same time, we are still on our way. And so, friends, we hold fast. So let us hold fast our confession with the help of this book and the imagery of an anchor without wavering. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your many gifts, for the Lord's table which we're about to share in. We give you thanks for the gift of your word and the preaching of your word. Without which the bread and the cup would be symbols without meaning. We need you to interpret them. Just as we needed you to interpret your acts and history throughout the Old Testament. We need you to speak and so you have spoken. And you have spoken to us by your Son, and you speak to us through your Son in the preached word. And we thank you for your word. And we pray for this series, as we work through this book, that you would strengthen us with hope to hold fast to Christ who is our anchor planted in heaven, an anchor perfectly fitted for our trials and our temptations and every human trouble we know. Father, as we turn now to partake at the Lord's table, we do pray for help to remember what Christ has done and to look forward to his coming. It's in his name we pray. Amen.